This is Top Floor, episode 73. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 73. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Brian Proctor has worked for some of the best hospitality companies in the world. From Four Seasons to Starwood to Evolution Hospitality and more. He is now principal at Leeds Hospitality Group and host of the weekly podcast, Tuesday's Thanks. I have known Brian for nearly 20 years, which when I was doing that math, absolutely not. We met when he was one of my bosses, one of my many bosses in opening the Western Arlington Gateway just outside of Washington, D.C. Although Brian has turned his attention to thanking people, in my mind, he's always been a funny and sort of sardonic leader who never took himself or the hotel business so seriously that he couldn't have fun along the way. Today, Brian and I are going to talk about the state of the industry and hopefully have fun. But before we do, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for burning questions from hospitality professionals and random people off the street. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. You can also send an email to susan at topfloorpodcast.com. Today's question was submitted by Riley. I love this question so much and I can't wait to hear what you say. Riley asks, why don't hotels give employees free rooms the way airlines give employees free flights? Take it away, Brian. You know, Riley, I couldn't agree more. I've never (laughs) understood if a room is sitting there empty and we have perks for our employees, why not give them the room to stay at? When I was coming up for seasons, uh, you got, I think, five free nights per year. Oh, really? Yeah. At four seasons, no less. At four seasons, no less. So if they can do it, you know, it's, I, I just think it's a great perk. And again, based on availability, if I'm running 30% occupancy, why not? They'll spend, you know, spend some more money in the restaurants or something. So, Riley, I'm with you on that one. <laughs> I've always sort of tried to explain it like, You know, an airplane is solely owned by the airline and each seat in the plane gets cleaned, whether it's occupied or not. Whereas a hotel might be owned by this or that owner and each room may not get cleaned no matter what. I mean, I think there's some logistical reasons why, but man, if we are trying to get people to work in this industry and build their careers here, that is a perk. You know, people get jobs at airlines just for the travel benefits. And I bet people would do the same thing at hotels. Absolutely. So I still have a crystal clear, like I can see it in my mind's eye, memory of you standing in the Louisa May Alcott boardroom at the Weston Arlington Gateway. The fact that I can even remember the name of the boardroom is pretty impressive. And you were telling everyone who was there, it was the hotel team and 
all of the pre-opening assistance to basically just calm down. You said, we're not curing cancer here. And I remember being so like a nervous wreck at the time because the porta cachet of that hotel had not been built. And I think we were opening in 36 hours or something like that. And we had all these people coming. And so I was freaking out and you were just like, y'all relax, calm it down. You have opened hundreds of hotels, so maybe they all blend together. But I wonder what, if anything, you remember from that opening. Well, first off, thanks for having me on the show. Mm -hmm. I'm a huge fan of you and this show. And uh, if I ever need a laugh and a giggle and to learn something, (laughs) I always tune in. So thanks. But um, yeah, and don't forget, I used to say, we're not curing cancer. We're just putting heads in beds. it's, It's not rocket science running a hotel. But I think with that one, probably three things stand out. Number one, the team that was there, the hotel team, was a very good team to open a property. Sometimes you have teams that are good openers and lousy operators, and sometimes you have really good operators that don't do the opening real well. And there just seemed to be a nice blend of the both with that leadership team. The other things were... We were rolling out Pinzamini, which mm-hmm. was a Starwood branded Italian themed restaurant. Whether it worked or not is regardless, but it was fun <laughs> to be rolling that out. And then that was, if you remember, one of the new Westin looks, the new design styles. So it was fun to see how we had taken something from a design studio and actually built it at that property. So I think those three things kind of remind me of that property being so much fun to open. You spent 10 years on Starwood's New Builds team, starting as a director and ending as vice president. Can you hit the highlights of the path that brought you to that position? Like, I don't think people are in hotel school going, I want to run the New Builds team for XYZ brand. How did you get there? Yeah, I don't... Th- well, yeah, I don't think anybody had heard of new builds and transitions. And, you know, the famous story goes that I don't know the difference between a flathead and a Phillips screwdriver. So <laughs> how the heck is he dealing with construction guys? But I think if you look back over the years, I think one of the first things was I was asked to help with the opening of the Sheraton in Halifax, Nova Scotia in 1985. So before you were born, <laughs> um, this was back in the ITT Sheraton days. And... I loved that experience. I went. I was at the Sheraton in Montreal, went down, helped them uh, run the front office, and eventually got hired there as front office manager and made some lifelong friends with Ray Hammer, Randy Savage, uh, Bill Shinnick, Hugh Harper, just to name a, a couple that um, we still all talk today. Um, so that was one. And then I was offered a position down in the States, which was key for me because as a Canadian, I always wanted to get down here just because the opportunity is bigger. So um, this little dynamo, Fred Corso, brought me down as a rooms division manager. I wasn't ready for the job, but him and I hit it off personally and he, and he brought me down anyways. So I think that was key. And then a real big key was I met my wife there. So we both worked at the same hotel. Uh, she was uh, in the sales area and uh, Whirlwind Romance got married. And the reason I bring that up is, and I've talked about this on on my show a couple of times with a lot of people, is that the ability to move around the country and take on different jobs and new aspects is very key. And if your partner is willing to go along with you for the ride, that makes everything easy. So, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the room ever. 
I didn't get into a good school at all. But anybody who offered me a position or a move, I always said yes to. So whether I was moving from Stanford, Connecticut, going back to Toronto to join Four Seasons, because I'm Canadian, if Four Seasons calls you, you go work for Four Seasons. <laughs> I think any nationality would make that move. Well, yeah. And then, you know, because you're right next to the home office there, you know, they asked me where I wanted to be. I said, well, I'd love to get back down to the States. And they said, great. And so they moved me to, you know, Beverly Hills at the Four Seasons Los Angeles, which is a whole story unto itself. <laughs> you could probably do a whole podcast about that hotel. Well, exactly. And so from there, then, you know, Interstate came calling and people said, well, why would you leave Four Seasons to join Interstate? It's two different companies. And the, the main thing was I was impatient. I wanted to be a general manager before I was 30. And if I stayed with Four Seasons, that's just not the way they roll. You have to do the same position a couple times or three times in different markets. So I left to join Interstate, you know, and then Starwood came along. And again, I remember um, interviewing with Rick Sewell because um, I'd worked for Ted Darnell and at Interstate, and I wrote him a letter. That's how long this is ago. I wrote him a letter, not an email, not a fax, not a text. <laughs> it was a letter saying, listen, if you have anything with this new Starwood Lodging, love to join you. So I went to Phoenix and interviewed with Rick Sewell, and I'll never forget this. We were talking, and Rick's the nicest guy in the world, If you, the best boss in the world. He, during three quarters of the way through the interview, pulls open a drawer, and he's got a piece of paper. And I said, what's that? He goes, these are all the hotels that have a GM opening. So what kind of hotel you want? And I said, well, I'd like it to be warm, because I was in California at the time, mm -hmm. and I'd like there to be hockey, because I'm Canadian. <laughs> so, so he went down the list. He said, oh, yeah, that's warm, but no hockey. And he says, yeah, Tampa, warm, no hockey. I said, whoa, whoa, Tampa Bay Lightning are there. He's, uh, he said, oh, I said, I'll take it. He goes, you don't even know what hotel it is. I said, I don't <laughs> care. It's in Tampa, for God's sake. That's amazing. And, and at the time, I was in San Luis Obispo, and, and it's a great place to visit, but not a great place to live. And so he said, well, what about your wife? I said, don't worry about her. We're going to Tampa. <laughs> he said, well, do me a favor. Fly home. Pretend like you talked to her and call me tomorrow. And, we'll, and so I got to Tampa. And then, you know, just by working with him and Dave Milas, the other best boss I've ever had in my life, they just said, hey, we think you'd be great for this new builds role. I don't know why. Again, I don't know anything about construction. I've never, you know, I've done that one thing back in 85. But they saw something in me. Um, and you know what? It was the best 10 years of my life. I never worked a day, traveled 2 million miles, but oh, it was awesome. So that's kind of a quick synopsis of a bunch of little things that kind of got me to that new builds team. I love that sort of thread throughout there of saying yes, even if it seemed like a weird or maybe you're, you weren't ready. I think that's something that uh, the very most successful people in our business are really good at doing. But it's scary. That's a that's hard to do. After Starwood was acquired by Marriott, I know you moved on to a vice president of operations role at Evolution Hospitality. I feel like they say evolution. Either way, well, yeah. <laughs> you, you've said that that role was not your best fit, even though you loved the company. Why is that? Yeah, they. I mean, they shorted it down to Evo, right? And so John Murphy just created this company that's an outstanding, outstanding 
branded lifestyle company, third-party management. And he was nothing but spectacular with me. John and I had worked together at Starwood when we were competing GMs. We had a, a competition as to whose hotel was worse. <laughs> I was at the Shirt and Suites Tampa full of mold, and he was at the Shirt and Gainesville full of everything. Uh-huh. Um, and I think he won because of the Gators. But uh-huh. long story short, him and I were talking during the time that inter- uh, that Starwood was being sold to Marriott, and I just thought it would be a great move. And the only reason it was, and again, they're an amazing company, and and Will Lofren is doing a great job now as the uh, uh, president of that company. But it's too much work for me. I'm not again back to the same concept. I'm not that smart. So when you're working <laughs> at a third, when you're at a third party management company like that, and I've told this story many times, we did this big celebration at Evo when we got to 50 hotels, and Will and Murph was great. They gave us all these you know cool gifts with the 50 on there. And like the next week, we were back down to 47. Oh, God. <laughs> because you're, you know, as soon as you become successful in that world, the owner's going to sell the asset because that's what they do. They flip assets, right? And you're managing. And for me, it brought me back to my interstate days where you had that burn and churn of ownership and going from one hotel to the next. And, and at that point in my career, that just wasn't where my head was at because I liked focusing on developing teams, developing brands, products, properties, and the constant flipping of hotels in and out just wasn't for me. But they, and that group continues today. I think they're probably close to a hundred hotels um, under the Ambridge arm, but the amazing company, amazing group. And Murph was fantastic. They have such a strong culture. Everyone that you meet who works for Evo, you can tell they're distinct. Oh, yeah. As chief operating officer at Bridge Street, you leveraged your hotel experience into corporate housing service departments. What are a couple of changes or practices, policies, something like that, that you brought to the company from your hotel days? Well, I think one of the things was, you know, the service department industry, it's been around in Europe forever. It's fairly new over here in the States, but it's a it's a totally, it's very similar to the hotel diff- business, but very different, right? So it is now maturing into a full-blown hospitality segment. So I think one of the nice connections for me there was being able to bring what I call 24-7 hospitality, because in the service department build business, you very rarely see your guests because they're just checking in with a key fob or something into an apartment, and you don't really see that. What we were developing at the time was the what's called the apart hotel concept. So it's an apartment building that operates as a hotel. So we had designed a brand called Mode. We'd opened up one in Paris, one in Edinburgh. And so bringing that hotel experience and background fully into the service department industry was fun. And then the other great part of that gig was the fact that as the partner for Google with their stay program, and their stay program was in Mountain View and Sunnyvale, where the Googlers would come and stay in apartments that we would manage for them. Mm -hmm. Google at that time was designing and developing a Google hotel just for the Googlers to stay at on their new campus in, in Mountain View. So being a part of helping Google and Bridge Street develop and build and open this Google Hotel was fun. So I think just bringing that hotel experience to the service department 
Um, world was was fun and a big key. Well, despite your youthful vitality and spry mind, you have been in the business for a really long time, about four decades. If you had to pinpoint two or three of the most impactful changes, shifts that you've witnessed in your career, what would those be? That's a tough one because I think there's a few that stand out. One was back probably in the early 2000s or whatever. And and I think that's the the use of data, right? So revenue management, you know, when, when I was coming up, there was reservations and there was sales and there was never any real revenue management. But with the onset of true revenue management, I mean, look at the technology that we saw at Starwood come through on that front. And how that changed. I mean, I remember being a general manager and, you know, to have had revenue management early on in my career would have been a great thing. I might have actually been a good general manager. But, you know, as soon as that data-driven use of technology and you could make decisions based on information and data rather than saying, oh, I think we do, you know, 14 corporate people on a Tuesday. Well, you don't know. Right. so I think for me, that was a big one because that turned the the needle to say the hotel business is a business, right? That was one of the one of the things because you know you could argue back in the 70s and 80s, it was a fluff business, right? You were just out there with nice uniforms, drinking wine, entertaining, blah, blah, blah. And it was a little bit different. But with the onslaught of the growth of the industry, I think it became a business. And then I guess the other one, this might be a weak answer, but I think branding, right? The the use of branding and marketing. I mean, think about back in the days, you had Sheraton, you had Marriott, and you had a couple other little brands, right? You had Hyatt and, and things. And Hilton. All this, Hilton, yep. Don't <laughs> want to forget them and anybody else. I apologize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, you look at the branding and the 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 importation of people outside the industry to market the industry was a big key, right? And we went, you know, you look at W, Aloft, Element, Courtyard, Residence, all of these things. The branding made it, again, just a growth industry in my mind. So I think those two would probably be the two biggest that I can think of off the top of my head. Are there any changes that you thought were coming that have not ever materialized? Well, aside from flying cars, um, <laughs> you know, it's materializing now. It's taken a lot longer. I don't know if there's any that haven't that I've thought about, but the one that's taken the longest is to do away with the front desk, hmm. right? Why, why do we need a front desk in this day and age when you can check in with your phone, uh, kiosks? One of the things we did with the Google Hotel was... You're able to check in the minute your flight lands. There's a kiosk there, and it's a very cool kiosk that you can check in. You don't need a person to do it. It's very simple. Um, And so I just think it's taken way too long to use automation for those types of positions. Yes, you, you still want somebody there, but you may not need three kids at the front desk. You may need one just to kind of walk around and do away with the darn desk. Mm -hmm. You know, make it a table. And walk around, make it free flowing, that kind of stuff. So I think the technology at the desk is something that hasn't 
changed rapidly enough or improved rapidly enough in my mind. I was talking to a friend who spent about 20 years in the in the industry and he is 100% convinced that the hotel business as a whole is just too complacent and old school and will never evolve and never innovate. Because of this podcast, I'm pretty torn. Like sometimes I want to bang my head against the wall because it feels like things are so glacial in their pace of change. And then sometimes I'm pretty excited about what the future holds when I hear from entrepreneurs and you know people who are coming up with new ideas. Where do you fall on that spectrum of we're hopeless and the sky's the limit? I think it depends on how you look at the word innovation. Because I would argue that the hotel business is very innovative. Now, it, we live in an app world, right? So everybody assumes the only innovation right now is via technology. But if you go back through the years and look at some of the things that have happened in the hotel business, and they're, they're probably none of them tech-related, but SPG, now, SPG, the old Starwood Preferred Guest Program, arguably the most innovative and creative loyalty program in the business. And definitely the most beloved, if you are to believe Flyer Talk and the other exactly. boards. That, that was hugely innovative to do that. No blackout dates, all of those things, right? Now, in today's world, that's just a loyalty program, but it changed the industry. Think about the heavenly bed before the heavenly bed Every Marriott, Hilton, Sheraton, Weston had the ugliest looking bedspreads <laughs> in the world until Barry said, I want a white bed and I want the bed. Think about it. I mean, he sat in a meeting with us and said, what's the one thing people come to a hotel for? To sleep. Make the sleep experience great and people will buy it. Sure enough, heavenly bed, heavenly shower. You could go through, you know, the the... Innovation, and again, I'm I'm using a lot of Starwood stuff because that's sure. where I was for 20 years. And because it was a very innovative company. Exactly. W Hotels took that branded lifestyle type of thing and standardized something that you can't standardize, right? So I would argue that the hotel business has been hugely innovative, just not in what I think people think of when they think of innovation because it's not on an app. Interesting. So maybe if we could look at everything but technology, you'll find that hospitality has in fact been very innovative. That's a really good point. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it that way. Yep. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from every single episode of Top Floor with a couple of really specific, practical, tangible tips that they can try in their businesses or in their personal lives. So Brian, Top Floor is not normally a career advice show, but you have had this sort of interesting, varied hotel career that most on-property leaders think of, I think, for themselves, dream of, right? What advice would you give to a hotel general manager or director of sales, director of rooms for managing her career? Well, I think uh, a couple. One is when you get to a position where you're responsible for hiring people, in our industry, hire for the person. Our industry is not rocket science. 
And if you're half the leader that you think you are, you can train or teach and educate and mentor someone in any role. So I always made it very clear that I wanted to hire for the person. I didn't care if they'd ever worked in a hotel. I used to walk in on interviews with the director of HR. She used to shoot me on this. And I would walk in and if she was uh, interviewing someone for front of house position on an hourly basis, I would walk in, crack one of my stupid Canadian jokes. <laughs> and if the and if the person sitting there laughed and smiled, then I like would touch my ear and they knew just hire the person mm-hmm. because that's I can train them to run a front desk. I can't train them to be nice, have fun, and want to serve people. So again, I've always said hire for the person, not the skills, because you can always teach those. Again, we talked about it earlier. Don't be afraid to take on new assignments. And I know that's hard these days, right? Because the millennials don't want to travel and everything and take on new jobs and you know move cross country and all that kind of stuff. But the best way to gain experience in working in our industry, learning about resorts, learning about suburban, conventions, city centers, all of those, the only way to learn about it is to actually go do it. So don't be afraid. I always put my hand up, volunteered for any role that came up. Again, I'm not that smart. So I figured if you were dumb enough to give me a job or offer me one, (laughs) I was going to take it. So before you say no, really make sure that you're thinking that through. And the last one is, and this this comes back to my days as a GM at the Sheraton Weston and Indy, is don't be afraid to fail. We tried to run two towers, one Sheraton, one Weston. And it failed miserably. I'm telling you, I can't tell you on, uh, it was an epic failure. So much so that after a year of trying to run two brands in one building, we went back to just being a Sheraton. So it was a Sheraton and a Weston. So I failed. In in theory, I failed. I was general manager, right? But we failed for a reason and we learned from it. And it actually made the complexing better in markets where it worked. I'm interested in digging into that for a minute because I have a feeling that somebody on the other end of our conversation listening in is like, um, how did your career not completely tank after that particular concept failed? And, you know, while I, I, you know, it was obviously an experiment for Starwood, do you think that you did anything that inoculated you against that failed concept or that do you know what I mean that sort of helped you you to not have it cling to you personally versus the concept and experiment yeah well a couple of things number one I dove in accepted the challenge and said we're going to make this work it didn't but I said <laughs> we were going to make it work and it worked really hard the other thing that people don't realize is when you take on an experiment like that the exposure you gain to the mucky bucks, as I used to call them. I mean, I would have Sue Brush in the building once every quarter. I would have Ted Darnell, Bob Hermony, all of these big shot executives because everybody wanted to come in and see, you know, how's Proctor doing? How's the hotels doing? Boy, he's really messing this up. This isn't working. (laughs) But they knew it was, it wasn't working. It wasn't because of a lack of the team effort. I mean, I had an amazing team there. We were all in. It just didn't work for a variety of reasons. So when they see you going that route and you doing that and then coming out of it, 
I think that's what got me. I think that's actually probably what got me into the new builds team was because I had such exposure to everybody. They said, hey, we're starting this new team. Maybe he might work there. Who knows? There is such a huge lesson in that, that that willingness to... I don't want to say willingness to fail because you didn't walk in like, hey, we can fail. It's cool. But the sort of openness to the experience is probably what then turned into the best part of your... One of the best parts of your career. Meeting me and opening the West. (laughs) One of the things that you post about on LinkedIn that I love are when you are traveling and you see these physical design issues, like weird choices that hotels are making. Can you give some examples of the hotel room design mistakes that really get on your nerves? Well, this isn't a design problem. It's just a stupid problem. So <laughs> on the first one, and I I think it's one of the most... I mean, I don't know how you count impressions on LinkedIn, but this this, this one series I did on how to do a shower correctly, right? So... The good news is companies and brands are going to be more sustainable by virtue of using the pump things in the showers versus the single-use plastics. For the shampoo, conditioner. For the shampoo, conditioner, and body wash. But if you look at some of these, and you've seen the pictures that I've posted, who can actually go in there and say, okay, let's put these three pump action things right under the shower head. So I have to stand in front of the shower with the water (laughs) coming in my eyes, trying to figure out which one to pump. I mean, logic, I would just tell you, you don't put them there. Yeah, but then when you bring it to your head, it washes off because you have to go through the stream. Exactly. You've got all this real estate on the back wall that you could put in there. So that's not really a design. That's just stupidity on the people (laughs) that are installing that. And I, you know, you you saw my series on it. It was amazing how long it took, how many hotels I was in until somebody got it right. But it's it's crazy. The other, from a design standpoint, and again, I guess it's kind of a design, is the ability to watch TV from the desk in a normal way. So I lived in hotels for, or I've traveled for 20 years. And it irks me when, you know, I want to have the hockey game on or the football game on, but I still need to do work or whatever at the desk. So putting a TV three inches from me at the desk (laughs) is blinding, and I'm sure I'm getting radiation. Or putting the TV behind me, not on a swivel thing, so that if I, I can't work and watch the TV. Because if you truly think about what you do in a hotel room, besides sleep, to Barry's point, you watch TV and you putter around. So how do you make that experience right? And some brands get it and some don't. And it's just annoying that I can't, I get so mad and I end up moving the desk away from the wall, ripping things. And I actually reconfigure the room while I'm there. I put it all back before I leave, but I'm sure if a room attendant or somebody comes into my room during mid stay, they're going, what the heck's going on in this room? So those, those two really tick me off. Not that I'm bitter. I stayed at a hotel in Cleveland, in downtown Cleveland, which, by the way, is an amazing city to visit, FYI. And the desk and... I feel like the desk, a little side table, and the desk chair were all on wheels. So you could do that. You could reconfigure it easily the way that you wanted. And I was like, man, if I ever build a hotel, 
every piece of furniture in the room is going to be on wheels for this very reason. The other one that kills me though, because I'm extremely short, is every single thing in a place that I can't reach in a guest room. Like the hook for the robe, can't reach it. The mirror, the like wall-mounted mirror, can't reach it, can't see a thing. Or the everything is always in the wrong spot for shorties like me. But that's probably not fair for me to hold against a hotel. <laughs> no, it's totally fair. My wife's five feet, my daughter's 4'11", and my other daughter's this huge person at five one and, <laughs> and you go into these and and what irks them is especially when they put the safe up high yes right because you got to go get a chair to see what's in the safe and all that kind of stuff no you're absolutely right and designers don't think about it and then they get testy when you're doing a model room review to say you know because i'll actually go i love doing model room reviews you know you'll sit down on the toilet and just say, okay, what do you see from here, Miss or Mr. Designer? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Is the tissue behind you? Because yeah, that's going to make somebody throw their back out. Exactly. I know you have from to be experience. double jointed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I remember when you did the model room review in Arlington and the desk chair was white. I mean, I learned so much from this and it was probably like 30 minutes, right? But you pulled the chair out and you're like, so this chair is going to be filthy in six months. So are you prepared to replace that? And they were like, oh, okay. Anyway, it was very instructive for me. So Brian, we have reached the point in our program where we do a little fortune telling. What's a prediction that you have about the future of the big brands in the hotel business? Wow. Um, okay. So... This is Brian Proctor vision of the world, so it probably will never come true. <laughs> but if you think about, you know, they're all public companies basically, right? And they all have to grow. And at some point, you can only have 10 million Hilton Garden Inns in a state, right? So if you think about how do you grow the hospitality segment of it, of these brands, and you think about where can I, where can I first get a customer? And then you can first get a customer in student housing. So if you were to take a Marriott brand and say, we're going to get into student housing, as a father who has spent $6 bazillion on student housing for my girls, if that was branded and you knew that it was going to be clean, it was going to be safe, I'm, I'm paying that money anyways, right? And ooh, I could get Bonvoy points. I was going to say, and you could right? get your points. That's brilliant. So if you think about the whole cycle, though, take it even so you so you say, okay, have Merritt branch out into student housing. They've got the hotels. They just announced they're doing Marriott apartments, right? They've got the yachts. Four Seasons got the planes. You could also tie it into senior living, right? Senior living is on fire right now because we're all getting older. Why not take that brand of Marriott and create that? So you could technically own a guest from the age of 18 when they first go off to school till they are no longer with us when you think about it. And you could create this lifelong customer and go through that. Now, whether that all comes to fruition, I don't know. But I think the bigger brands, especially now that Marriott's gotten into the apartments, I think the Hiltons of the world will see the value there. Um, and I think that will all come through. So I'm I'm thinking that would be my prediction is they should start with student housing and take it all the way to senior living and brand it all. You know, that's interesting. Um, Andy Chopra, who is the managing 
director, managing partner of an investment company, I heard him speak at a conference and he was talking about the idea that there are all of these courtyards and Hampton Inns that are built across the parking lot from an office park and people aren't going to the office anymore. So maybe that's what you do with those hotels instead of like conversion branding them out to an economy scale and whatever, you turn that into student housing, senior housing, that kind of thing that's no longer reliant on that office complex. I think you're on to something there, my friend. And I'm about to rush to my investment company and see what we can do. (laughs) If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the process of travel as a traveler, what would it be? Well, I've talked a little bit about this. I would like to wave my wand and just say, screw you, pardon the pun. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if this is a clean show or not, but screw you on check-in and check-out times. Why do we have them? Mm-hmm. We have technology available to say, oh, Miss Barry, your flight arrives at 7.43 in the morning. Hour to the, you'll be there at 8.45. I know I'm going to have a room available to you because I've got someone who checked out at 6 o'clock. So right. Why, why, you know, why? And you'd probably pay extra for that. So I can make money, make you happy, and the whole world is good. So just get away from the, you know, why can't you check out at four o'clock in the afternoon? Like every hotel that you go to, the conference ends at four and check out on the last day and check out's noon or whatever. That doesn't make sense. Like just build it in you know the conference goers aren't going to be ready to leave until 5. So build it into the price. We'll build it into the price, build it into the staffing, all of that kind of stuff. And yes, there are some days where that might cause havoc. But you know, at the end of the day, 99% of the time, it's going to be fine. So if I had a magic wand, check in, check out, just done. Poof, gone. I like it. Okay, folks, before we tell Brian goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. I cannot wait for this. Brian, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? All right. Well, I've I've, I've got a couple of them, but one that I've always enjoyed telling, and I don't tell it in public that often, um, and I think I'm safe to tell it now was back in, again, before you were born, in 1983 to 85, I used to work night shift at the Sheraton Center in Montreal. Uh, 828 room hotel, spectacular hotel. For whatever reason, and I, I won't use names here, but for whatever reason, the head of the Montreal mob took a liking to our hotel. And he took a liking to me. Um, and he was of the mindset that the phones were tapped in the hotels. And so he would show up to me every night. And again, I was working the graveyard shift and he would come over and he didn't speak English. So we were speaking French, but he'd say, you know, Brian, I, I need some change for quarters. And he'd give me a hundred dollar bill and he'd want a roll of quarters. Wow. And it got to the point where I just said, you know, I would just have quarters for him and just give them to him and say, you know, out of my house bank or whatever, because he only wanted like four quarters at the time, but he was already carried these hundred dollar bills. <laughs> and so 
he had his drug guy and his prostitute guy and all these guys. And so here I was, this stupid looking little front desk kid. Now I'm 20, 1983, I'm 23 years old. And he will only deal with me. And so he would have his guys come see me, get rooms, this, that, and the other thing, and all above board and all that kind of stuff. And I'll never forget one night, my apartment was ha- was in between my hotel and what's called Crescent Street, which is a street in Montreal where you go to imbibe and party and have fun. So one night I was walking to this bar that I'd go to every single night. Sounds bad, but that's just what you did when you were 23. Of course. And a buddy of mine came out of the shadows and kind of, he had been drinking way too much and he kind of knocked me down on the ground and it was winter. So it was slippery. So, you know, we fell down. I didn't get anything of it. So the next night, um, this gentleman comes to the desk, Brian, I need some quarters. So I gave him my quarters and he, he goes, are you, he goes something to the effect, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm great. Having a good night. So it's quiet. You know, we're not oversold for once. He goes, no, no. Are you okay? Is everything all right with you? And I said, yeah, absolutely sir um <laughs> and he goes you sure he says because if, if you ever need help just let me know and i said no i'm really good he goes well i have to tell you i was coming out of lace hall which was this very fine fancy restaurant on crescent street last night and i saw some guy jump you from behind or knock you over and i just want you to understand <gasps> that if you ever need any help <laughs> just tell me what you need and i'm thinking now for people who can't see this, I'm pale because I have red hair and, you know, <laughs> typical Scottish type of thing. I must have been white as a ghost. And I said, oh, no, sir, sir. That was a friend of mine from college. He had just had too much to drink. So he says, okay, well, just remember, if you ever need anything. So he went and did his business. I go back behind the front desk. And my buddy was working at another hotel on overnights. And I called him. I said, you owe me at least three shots tonight. And he goes, well, I said, because I just saved your life. He goes, how the heck did you save my life? And I told him the story. He goes, okay, you're getting five shots. But it was so funny. That is wild. Like the godfather of Montreal at the time telling me, you know, boom, boom, boom. And then just to add a little cap- an ending to this, about three weeks later, I'm out with my girlfriend at this bar and the bars in Montreal close at three. So at 2.30, you get last call. So, Lights start flickering. We're in this club um, and last call. And so this guy comes over to me and he says, um, Brian Proctor. And I said, yeah, he goes, there's a private party at three o'clock and, and you're, we'd like you to stay and your, your group can stay. And, and I'm with my girlfriend and two other couples and I'm thinking private party, what the heck's going on? So I said, and so my friends are all going, Oh, wow, you are a big shot. Right? <laughs> I said, okay, thank you very much. So the lights go, so it's three o'clock on the nose, literally, maybe two bottles of Dom Perignon on ice come over to the table. And I'm going, oh my God, I don't have any money for this. What the heck's going on? Right? What? And sure enough, who walks in? But the Godfather guy again. No, sir. How did he know you were there? And, well, his, his, the guy who was running, who allegedly was running the drug operation for them at the time saw me and he knew me very well. And so he, that's how, and I'm going, I said to my girlfriend, we got to get out of here and we got to get out of here fast. I, I don't want to be, in, you know, we're going to get killed. We're going to get shot. You can't get in, be indebted to the mob. 
Well, I don't even care about being indebted. I, I didn't want to get shot because it's after hours. I didn't want to get arrested. My father would have disowned me. I mean, it was just crazy. So <gasps> that's so. See, that's the kind of glamour and intrigue that we need to bring back into the hotel. <laughs> it's it's still there. Trust me, it's still there. Yes. Brian Proctor, thank you so much for being here. I loved every story that you told and truly enjoyed riding up to the top floor. Well, thank you for having me. This has been fun. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 73. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 